All right, and we're live. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 61 of the Multiverse Show with your host, Anchorman V2, and we got a great show lined up for you guys. But real quick, uh, sad moment for George Romero. Uh, he passed away yesterday, um, 77. Um, just sad loss for the horror and film industry, just tragic. Anyway, moving right along, we got a really nice panel lined up for you guys today. But first, let's go through our intros for our co-hosts this evening. Uh, the next or the next succession of co-hosts, we got Nick. What's going on, guys? Glad to be back on the show on a Monday again. And we got James Wilson. I can't believe you missed an opportunity to make an undead joke. <laughs> I know, man. I was trying to think of something later, but we're gonna get into that. Hopefully, I'll come oh. up with something a little bit there. And yeah, we got Mike. Yo, what's going on, guys? It's Mike from the Inner Circle at TICGN.com. And thank you all once again for joining us for another wonderful episode of the Multiverse Show. I'm sorry, I cut you off there, James. What was that? It was your intro time. So no, I was just saying, I was saying hi. <laughs> hi. We have our guest for the evening. This has been one I was very surprised we actually pulled off. Uh, we got Ian Dallas from Giant Sparrow. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. We used to have sound oh. effects, and I, I feel empty <laughs> without them. <laughs> all right. So we got a really cool uh, show lined up. I just, uh, First of all, Ian, I'm, I'm just glad you were able to come on the show with us. I, James was trying to put this up behind the scenes, and when he told me so, we got Ian Dallas, so I was shooting for an art director. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean nothing against you ian but i i, I contacted uh chris bell i mm -hmm. got well i contacted uh, giant spire and then said hey can we talk to chris and then they came back with going hey do you want to talk to the head of the company hmm. and i went yeah. sure well i sit next to chris yeah sorry we finally get some questions to ask um so real quick uh I hate to waste an opportunity. So we're going to do a quick little uh, <laughs> interview here. Uh, we just had a couple of questions for you, just some basic stuff. Um, so just briefly, uh, Ian, just kind of give us your background. Like, uh, What were you doing before you were a developer, and what, what kind of made you become a game developer? Oh, uh, before I was a developer, I was a comedy writer. And I started off initially at The Onion, writing uh, parody news, and then worked in uh, television for various like sitcoms and uh, animated shows, and then went to grad school for uh, game design. And then the this prototype that I was making in grad school of exploring this white world, throwing paint everywhere, ended up uh, getting a development deal with Sony. And then we made our first game, uh, The Unfinished Swan, in, uh, that came out in 2012 for PlayStation. And then uh, for the last Four and a half years, we've been working on our new game, What Remains of Vita Finch, which uh, just came out in April for PS4 and PC, and then comes out uh, on Wednesday uh, of this week for uh, Xbox. Oh wow! <laughs> I did not know you were in uh, you were in TV. That's what made you. What made the jump to game design? <laughs> just seems really kind of out of nowhere. Yeah, well, I, I've always been interested in surprise, like things that uh, shake up people's view of the world. And I think, you know, really interesting comedy like Monty Python or SNL, uh, you know, does that kind of thing. 
And I'd always expected that I'd become a writer for games. Like in college, my plan had been to uh, write for TV or movies, since that was kind of more of an established thing. And then after a few years uh, to move into video games, figuring that video games would sort of mature as a medium. And then you know, I had this sort of realization as I started looking at how games are actually made that uh, game writers don't really have much to do with the overall conception of the game. They're called in kind of at the end to sort of polish things up and essentially like put lipstick on a pig. So you know, I kind of shifted uh, to thinking about you know, maybe creating the games uh, from an earlier step before the writing. Uh, you know, and at that point, I like taught myself how to program and was interested in making these little prototypes. And uh, yeah, so then I ended up at, at USC in the uh, grad school for studying game design. You mentioned Monty Python. Is that why Terry Gilliam is the voice of the king in the unfinished <laughs> one? Uh, yeah, I mean, that is, that is a big part. But uh, actually, the main reason is because Terry Gilliam uh, directed a film called Time Bandits. That yeah. was one of the key pieces of inspiration, as well as you know things like Brazil and Twelve Monkeys. Uh, I just really like Terry Gilliam's work and wanted to, uh, to have him involved here. We actually tried on this game to get uh, Neil Gaiman to do the narration for uh, Lewis's story, but he, you know, at the time that we contacted him, they were like, "Oh yeah, he's not accepting any new, uh, you know, opportunities for the the next twelve months." So we were a little late. All right, all right, Mike. I think you get the next one. Uh, yep. Uh, so your first game as a studio was Unfinished Swan, which I actually played really recently and really have enjoyed so far. Um, I really want to know, uh, what was your inspiration behind the game? Like, there's so many different styles that go into the game. I, th I found the game such an art piece with all the different colors and all. Uh, just how the game builds is just absolutely beautiful. So I kind of want to know uh, how you went about doing that. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, both of our games really started from the same place, which is uh, just a feeling. And in the case of The Unfinished Swan, the feeling was playing the prototype. Uh, so I... Initially, it started off as just a straight mechanic of, oh, what if you're in a white world throwing these paintballs around to explore? And then, you know, once we had that working, uh, there's just a lot of time of like, where spent thinking about what should this become? Like, what does it kind of feel like to play? And, you know, I think early on, there was some thought, uh, certainly people who'd seen the video, they expected it would be something like Portal that was like a, you know, kind of series of investigations into this mechanic and how it developed. And it just wasn't something I was interested in making. I think for me, when I played the prototype, what was interesting was that sense of the unknown and you know, the kind of sense of wonder that you get from a totally white landscape of kind of infinite possibilities. And so you know, I looked at trying to find references that felt like they kind of evoked that similar sense of um, kind of exploration. And you know, I'd say the, the biggest inspirations were uh, Alice in Wonderland and uh, the uh, children's literature in general, but especially uh, Chris Van Allsburg's books like Jumanji and, uh, you know, all of his books basically that have this kind of painterly quality. Uh, and just, yeah, the feeling of really reading a children's book was what inspired The Unfinished Swan. Yeah, like when I was playing through the game, I loved how you guys like associated like the collectibles in the game were part of the story and it like the collectibles enhanced the experience and uh, how 
one of the most beautiful moments in that game for me was when you walk out and you see the maze in the castle for the first time. I thought that was such a beautiful set piece. And it was probably uh, one of my favorite visual pieces I've actually seen in a video game in quite a few years. I just oh, thanks. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that moment because I think for me that's the definitive moment of awe that we've been able to achieve as a studio which you know, we kind of stumbled into by accident. Uh, but you know, it's, the sense of awe is a, a really delicate emotion. Uh, but you know, I think there are a few things that we've discovered that actually you know, kind of make that more likely to happen, um, particularly going from kind of a small enclosed space to something that is uh, vast and kind of unusual but beautiful at the same time. And so, that moment, you know, where you're, you're in the king's workshop, this very tight space, going, you know, up these stairs, and you see the labyrinth for the first time, uh, really inspired the first time that players see the Finch House, actually, in, in What Remains of Edith Finch, where you're kind of walking through this, uh, you know, kind of dense forest, and then you step out, and then you, you know, see this, this giant crazy house in the background. Um, so there's even though the games are very different in a lot of respects, um, there's kind of a similar kind of heartbeat that they both share. Yeah, that's really cool. All right. All right. Any further questions? All right. So, um, so last week, and like you said earlier in the show, you guys announced what remains of Edith Finch coming to the Xbox One, which, as somebody that primarily games on Xbox, I'm really, really looking forward to. So. It's kind of a two-part question for me. So, number one, what was it like working with Microsoft on that project? And are you excited about making your debut on Xbox? Uh, yeah, I mean, Microsoft was really pretty, uh, pretty chill about uh, everything. I think it helped that we had already basically finished the game. Um, you know, we had gone through a lot of teething pains on the PlayStation 4. Uh, you know, with regards to things like, you know, like saving or when you're allowed to do or throw this prompt up or whatever. Just a lot of, like, annoying little edge cases that come up at the end of the game. So by the time we were working with Microsoft, uh, you know, we already had a finished PS4 version. So, yeah, I think there were a few things that, uh, you know, I mean, just, like, really small niggly things, like, about, like, oh, when do you show the player, uh, I can't remember what they call it on Xbox, like, the username. You know, and like, oh, like for a while we were going to have to show it in the menu, which would have been really difficult for us um, because of the way that the text works in the game to support. And they were really, um, yeah, I mean, very, very gentle and kind about <laughs> waving things where it made sense to wave them. And uh, yeah, in terms of how I feel about coming out on a new platform, you know, super excited. Uh, really happy that, uh, you know, this game is going to come out to a totally new group of players that uh, hopefully will find it and, uh, you know, be astonished by it. And it's, it's really, you know, kind of surprising to me, obviously, as a game developer, you know, video games are a huge part of my life. So, you know, I kind of have every system very shortly after they come out. Um, but, you know, in the real world, like regular people who do other things than play video games, uh, you know, they're like really attached to, like, I'm a Nintendo person or I'm a, you know, Xbox person. And, it's great that uh, you know we can make the game available for people in you know, like whatever their preferred uh, you know ecosystem is. Awesome, that's fantastic. Okay. I I would like to uh, ask you some. It's a bit of an interesting question because I I like to think 
Sorry, I just got to say, when I record these, it's 1 a.m., so I am very tired right now. Uh, right. And I can't get my words out. You sound out. tired and British. That, that is my entire personality in three words, so well done. Yeah. I actually, <laughs> um, I had an interview with somebody at 8 a.m. recently, and uh, it turned out he was in Seattle, and we were both a little confused. Like, why was it scheduled for 8 a.m.? I assumed you were British. Um, oh, wow. Well. not British. Okay. So I want to talk about the, the line you toe between storytelling and gameplay, specifically near the Finch, and specifically with the Gregory, Lewis, and Barbara segments. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not going to go into spoilers, because I don't want those spoilers for anyone who hasn't played it. Because uh, to me, they're, the, to me they're the highlights of the game. Um, yeah, because, so in regards to Lewis's one, you have the, you have the monotony and you have the storytelling. How did you manage to, first of all, come up with something that is genuinely one of the most brilliant pieces of game design I've, I've experienced in the past few years? And where do you toe that line of, this is a game, this is a story that we're telling? Uh, yeah, so I'll answer the first question uh, in the beginning. This is a very, very easy answer. We stole it. Uh, that story is actually based on a 1912 short story by a British author named Lord Dunsany. And uh, it's about uh, a man who goes to business in London uh, selling things and you know, kind of gradually gets lost in his own imagination. Uh, there's no cannery. There's, I mean, there's a lot of things that we, we changed uh, about it to make it a game. But the initial idea, uh, you know, we just found uh, already kind of fully formed in some respects. So that made that process a little bit easier and we could focus on just like, how do we implement this, um, like not only as a game, but also like what feels like it would be the most appropriate for you know the world that we've created? And you know, I think for us, it's usually. I mean, uh, Lewis's story is a little unusual in that respect because it started from you know more of like a story with a plot and a character. Uh, but generally speaking, our stories in this game begin as uh, you know kind of mechanics or as emotions or feelings like this sort of a nugget of something that we're interested in exploring uh, as opposed to like a, a character that we're interested in or, or something and the stories usually come very late I mean I think Gregory's story is a pretty good example of that where we knew that we wanted to have you know a story from a, a baby's perspective and we wanted to have uh, you know this frog in a bathtub but you know, in terms of like what the player would be hearing, and when you think about like story in the sense of you know plot and character and dialogue and all that, uh, you know, that really only came in at the end, or really gelled at the end, I guess I should say. You know, we had versions of stories that you know just didn't really fit, and I think for us the hardest part is always what is the player doing? You know, what is it that your controls are mapped to? What do you care about? What are you kind of afraid will happen? What are you trying to make happen? And you know, for us, we, we wait until we have something that's like a satisfying piece of interaction before worrying about any kind of story, um, like an overt kind of dialogue and, and character. Um, so yeah, like in, in Lewis's story, uh, we tried a bunch of different, really crazy, overly complicated uh, kind of uh, boring jobs that Lewis could have, like working at a telephone switchboard and making um, food, I think, in a kitchen was one of the ideas. And we just sort of, yeah, kind of coalesced into 
the uh, idea of eventually chopping fish, which seemed like a good fit for, you know, they, we were trying to make a game about the sublime horror of nature. And, you know, chopping fish seemed like a good way to kind of balance that against something that felt uh, mundane. So I don't know if that helps answer that. And, and Barbara, I guess I haven't really talked at all about Barbara's story. Um, you know, that was, uh, I don't even remember how that came about. That was uh, initially kind of inspired by, uh, you know, the um, John Carpenter film Halloween, uh, a little bit of, John, of uh, George Romero as well in there. Uh, I mean, Barbara's name, right, is uh, is totally from the They're coming to get you, Barbara. Day. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's 100, like straight up, uh, George Romero. And oh, wow. yeah, I don't know. It's just a lot of, you know, experimenting and trying things out. And originally Barbara's story is going to be all about using this crutch that you had, uh, you know, to like manipulate things. We had this really cool prototype for being able to actually like play pool with the crutch. I was really impressed that we had this very novel, interesting mechanic for how you would use your two analog sticks to like move this crutch around. And you could actually like legitimately play pool. Uh, but it didn't really serve the story. And we ended up, you know, kind of making it a very simple swing, almost like a weapon, basically. Uh, and that, you know, it's not really the story, I guess more like the feeling that we wanted, like knowing that this is going to be the most kind of overt, hoary comic book, kind of Tales from the Crypt uh, feeling story. Uh, you know, we can tune the mechanics to, to more match that feeling. So I don't know if that long-winded answer, uh, you know, addresses your, your question or not. I sort of just want I sort of just want to have a conversation with you about, about the game without going into spoilers and you you, you, yeah. you did it fantastically. Oh thanks. But for those of for those of you who haven't played Edith Finch and didn't understand a word of what was just <laughs> said, I highly recommend that you do. And I bet Ian also does as well. Yeah, you know I think if if you're the kind of person that uh, that likes experiences you've never had before. Uh, you know, I think this this game has a lot to offer there. Uh, if you're the kind of person who really, you know, just likes uh, grueling death matches, um, you know, against people from across the country, this may not be, you know, the multiplayer game for you since it has no multiplayer components. Mm. But um, yeah, for a certain, you know, kind of gamer that uh, that digs things they've never seen before, uh, this game has a lot. A couple, a couple more questions. I just got to say. Uh, uh... I'm not going to ask you your favorite story because that that would be cruel. But I am going to ask you what's the one that you feel most proud of that you told? Hmm, most proud of? Um, In terms of maybe story or a, or a mechanic? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I'm, I'm really proud of the way that Gregory's story came together. Uh, you know, partly because that story was on the chopping block. Uh, you know, like six months before we released our publisher was asking us to cut it uh, because it just wasn't there. And I guess I'm not proud so much of like what I did on that. I'm really more proud of what our gameplay programmer, Evan Rogers, managed to do because Evan was in this meeting and the publisher was like, guys, we're, we have too many stories. We need to cut some stories. Uh, Gregory's story is the one that's like not, you know, at least for far along. And Evan Rogers is like, no, we can make this work. We've, we've spent too much time. And... Yeah, it's just, it's amazing how a few deft, uh, you know, adjustments in the way that the frog moves and the way that, you know, everything kind of operates uh, helped that story to coalesce into something that, uh, you know, went from being confusing and frustrating 
to, you know, kind of joyous. And I think that sort of really needs to be joyous, you know, for what else is going on in that or like otherwise players just have this very uh, kind of dark takeaway from it. But, you know, the story works, I think, because uh, our gameplay programmer, Evan Rogers, uh, you know, and, and Chris Bell and everyone else, uh, our designer did a really great job of tuning something in a very specific direction to match, you know, where it needed to be. So I would say Gregory's story is the one I'm most proud of. Cool. Very two very quick I'll, questions. I'll ask. Well, I, okay. I have to ask one. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I got to get one in Everyone before you ask the question. Was it? I got to ask one question before you get in the question. Uh, <laughs> How did you get Neil Druckmann to be QA? Oh, uh, yeah, we just asked. Uh, I think that's the, uh, the, one of the wondrous things about game development is that it's a really small community. And, you know, I think we asked Neil maybe like the week before or something. And uh, Chris Bell, our designer, and I uh, went over to Neil's house because uh, we're all you know, in Los Angeles. And we just stopped by one Sunday and uh, we, we brought, this is like very late in development. This is maybe in January of this year. Uh, a couple months before we're supposed to be completely done with the game. And we just brought over uh, a PlayStation 4 development kit and hooked it up to his, computer, or his uh, TV and, and played it in his living room. And that's something we like to do at the end of development, where we actually play uh, with people in their houses, as opposed to having them come by the studio. And, you know, because people feel like kind of guinea pigs or lab rats when they know they're being tested. But if you're in their house, uh, maybe if they've been drinking, ideally, uh, you know, there's just like a sort of more natural feeling that you get. So, yeah, we just, uh, the short answer is we, we asked. Nice. All right. <laughs> All right. So, the question everyone has subconsciously been asking themselves what's up with the birds? Oh, Giant uh, well, obviously. Finches. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it should be no secret to anyone that I really like birds. Uh, and personally, that's my my spirit animal or uh, you know class of animals. And uh, for me, you know, the bird is uh, you know among other things, just kind of like a a symbol of the presence of nature in our otherwise very civilized lives. Like it's one of the few animals that can actually coexist with us. Like even though we've done our best to make, you know, the spaces that we inhabit completely, uh, you know, uninhabitable for, uh, for most animals, particularly like, you know, larger animals, things other than insects, uh, you know, birds have sort of managed to live with us. And yeah, it's just amazing to me that you can look out your window and see this miraculous creature uh, you know, flying through the air or perched, you know, on a tree nearby. And, and hopefully, you know, our games have a similar feel of this thing that is from a different developmental, you know, kind of timeline uh, and this, like, just a little snippet of wonder in an otherwise, you know, somewhat samey environment. All right. That is a professional answer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, oh, we, 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 we genuinely were expecting you to go, man, they're just pretty. Oh, I mean, that too. You know, there's yeah, something well, obviously, really well, compelling yeah. uh, about them. That, uh, I, if, yeah, I don't honestly understand what it is that I find compelling, but, you know, that's something that we'll be exploring in our next game, which will also involve birds in some way, I'm sure. All right. 
All right, that, that kind of concludes the interview portion of the uh, episode. I uh, kind of get into some more of our discussion topics for the evening. Now, one of the things in particular that happened over the weekend that we kind of got some confirmation about was um, Wolfenstein 2. People who care about that game, such as myself being a Bethesda head. Now, Wolfenstein 2 has been confirmed that uh, on the Xbox One X it's going to be some getting some uh, 4K support, and uh, it's going to be HDR as well. Now, the thing about this one that makes it interesting, though, is the past game, the new order, was 60 FPS. And so I highly doubt they're going to move from 60 FPS to 30 FPS all of a sudden. So I guess this kind of comes into the question of with uh, mid-generation upgrades and such. Uh, the general panel here, what are your general thoughts on uh, mid-generation upgrades? Uh, we'll start with uh, Mike. Keeping kind of quiet. I mean, you know, I think the way that these new features, quote-unquote, that take advantage of these mid-generation upgrades have kind of been, they're kind of like finesse consoles, in my opinion. Um, what I would like to see, I would like to see more options going forward from developers. So an example of that, some good examples of that would be kind of like what they did with Rise of the Tomb Raider on the PS4 where you had your 4K mode, but then you had a high detail mode at 1080p, and then you had a high performance mode, which was 60 frames per second. And Horizon Zero Dawn did something similar to that. Um, in my opinion, there's too much focus on the 4K aspect, and I would personally sacrifice that to get 60 frames per second in every game, especially if it's a first-person shooter like Wolfenstein. Like you said, the first one was 60 frames, so it's likely that Wolfenstein 2 is going to be also. But that's kind of like what I want to see more. I want to get those options. I'm not saying PC-level settings here, but just like a detail mode, a 4K mode, and a performance mode across the board is something that, that I would like to see. And I think it would make these consoles a little bit more worthwhile in the long run. All right. Nick? You alive? <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, I don't know. Like, uh, mid-console refreshes, it always... Like, I grew up in, like, you know, I started playing games in the N64 and that kind of generation era. And it, it just kind of fools me around with having mid-gen console refreshes because their, their games are going to run different on the base models. And then you've got three years later, we've got uh, these other consoles that kind of do something a little different. I'm more excited. I'm less excited about the 4K aspects and more of what developers can do with uh, AIs or like other things they can do with it. Like they can make their games more immersive. They can add more details. Like there's a lot more opportunity for that with these mid-gen consoles, but everyone's focusing on the 4K aspects. I think the mid-gen refreshes are cool because by adding more RAM and et cetera to consoles gives the developers more freedom if they were restricted by the power of the initial consoles. It just gives them more options. Like I don't expect every game to be 4k and no one should expect that but i'm really excited for what these mid-gen console refreshes could mean for games down the road we may not see it right off the bat it's the same thing as like if you look at the games that came out when xbox 360 and ps3 first came out and then you look at the games that came out at the end of that generation 
and you're still using the same console, but people learned how to optimize the programs and development and everything else better. I'm kind of excited to see where uh, they take this with the mid-gen refreshes, because as you see in games like, uh, for example, God of War, that trailer was showing on the regular PS4, so obviously they've learned to optimize the power they have within the console to a certain point, and I'm just really excited to see what uh, developers can do with the extra power. And it would be nice to know for each game what exactly you're going to get because there's games that take meaningful advantage of the new hardware, and then there's games that don't do anything with it. So I think that's another frustrating point with these mid-gen consoles too is that based on the game, you really don't know what you're going to get with each individual game. Mm-hmm. What about you, James? Um, I, you know my position on the frame rate debate. I don't really care as long as it as long as it sort of stays. I don't mind. And you know, get games look pretty. And some, I'm the wrong person to ask. I'm a film critic. <laughs> oh, you're used to twenty four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, all right. So, Ian, uh, what are your general thoughts about these mid generation upgrades? <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think it's great that people have an opportunity to, you know, if they want, uh, you know, get a slightly better version of, uh, you know, what else is out there. And particularly if you've just bought a 4K television and you're looking for things, you know, to throw up on it, it's it's a cool option. It's, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of as a developer, it's a little tricky to know how much work to put into making something that you know, only a, a pretty small part of your audience is going to see, and, and we'll see when the Xbox, you know, the new one comes out, like what that, uh, you know, what sales are like. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's great when it's something that, uh, you know, doesn't really hurt anybody. That uh, you know, and I think graphics are the easiest one there, where, you know, if you have slightly better anti-aliasing or you know a higher frame rate or whatever, uh, you know, that's just. It's, it's better for those people, but it doesn't make the experience worse for everyone else. Um, in our game, actually, you know, one of the things that we noticed that was the most significant was uh, the faster hard drive speed. So for us, you know, we spent a lot of time working on loading times as you're moving around the world, having things stream in. And the experience on the PS4 uh, Pro is just a lot better there. Like, you're less likely to run into slowdowns caused by that. But it's something that I think a lot of players are not really aware of, you know, just kind of at the subconscious level of the game is slightly better. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any plans to use the Xbox One X hardware in the future? Uh, I don't think we have development kits for it yet, so we haven't really seen you know, what kind of an improvement uh, we'd see. So no, no plans yet, but, uh, but who knows? Right. This further fuels my theory that the Xbox One X is, is not a console, but a MySpace username. <laughs> touching that one <laughs> somebody's gamer tag playing call of duty <laughs> there's, just, there's, just, there's just too many x's for me <laughs> oh man all right uh so the other topic for the evening before we wrap things up uh over the weekend was very 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 busy a lot of stuff going on wimbledon and doctor who um, Game of oh, Thrones. Man, Doctor Who. I, oh, you kept that quiet. You forgot. You can't <laughs> shut me up. We're talking about Doctor Who now. 
<laughs> okay, I'm out. Oh, yeah. Well, this has been episode 61 of the Multiverse so Show, everybody. I'm literally going to say, the Doctor is a woman now, and I think that's pretty cool. Right, I'm done. Happy? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'm actually really good no, genuinely because like the the the, fund, the whole fun fundamental change of Doctor Who is about to happen because we're going to get a new doctor and we're going to get a new companion and there's going to be relationship changes and also the lead writers leaving so there's going to be a different style to the show and I I'm very excited. It's going to be awesome. Please carry on. So, one of the other things that did happen over the weekend was um actually I think it was Raleigh Supercar was on. That's a whole other thing entirely. <laughs> But uh, one of the other things that also did happen was D23. This is uh, Disney's convention that they do in Anaheim. Why is it called D23? What was it? Why is it D23? I don't remember. I think it's because they have 23 studios or something. It, it's something like that. Um, All right. They, they treat it like their own personal convention, and they they announce a bunch of different stuff, and especially since the Marvel acquisition and Star Wars they, and Pixar. You know, at least, like, Four solid good groups, the Disney Animation. There's tons of stuff going on, honestly. It's it's a fun little convention to watch um, if you can. <laughs> uh, but they do not stream really any of it. it. It is hard to get really any sort of footage from there. Now, one of the things that did come out, though, was uh, a little video game uh, <laughs> presentation during the same time frame. One of them was, one of them was Kingdom Hearts 3. Kingdom Hearts 3 showed off this little Toy Story level and their whole world, and it's it's a cool little thing here and there. In particular, was they showed off, they say, coming in 2018. <laughs> we've been here before. <laughs> we've seen with Kingdom Hearts in particular, and there's other games that are pretty bad offenders, but Kingdom Hearts, people have been waiting, what, over a decade now? For this game, <laughs> and they have just the the wait has been absurd. And particular when it comes to release dates, I think this sparked a discussion amongst uh, I think on Twitter uh, over the weekend. I thought it was a pretty decent one. When it comes to release dates, what's your general philosophy regarding that? Um, do you do you want a longer release date, uh, at least from, not release date, a longer announced to release period, or do we just shoot for a, a shorter one? And I'm just really kind of, I'll start with James, really. Like, what, what do you prefer? I mean, I think, it de- I think it depends on the game. Or it doesn't, I don't know, it's weird, because I think, I think, it, let's, see, uh, let's use Resident Evil 7 as a, as a good example. So, if you really look at it, the hype for that game began with with the kitchen demo if you if you if you really want to look at it like this so that was before psvr was even psvr that was still project morpheus that was e3 2015 yeah and so people were getting interested in the idea of horror in vr so then they secreted that and then they announced resident evil 7 and with an under under a year that game is out and of course, everyone, the, the Duke Nukem conversation, that's always involved in delayed games that didn't fulfill their potential. The Last Guardian is another one in there. Uh, and you, loved, you, Anchor, love to talk about how Bethesda have nailed it after Fallout 4. But I do think... Um, so, so, so what remind me exactly the wording of the, of the question. 
if push came to shove, which would you prefer as a general practice? Do you would you lean more towards a longer announced release time period or a shorter one? Oh, shorter. If if it was my way, I would I would have it, you know, a week before a trailer comes out. That's real short. <laughs> Not expect that. Oh, no, I, I'm I'm a big believer in secrecy and kind of things. So that comes from that comes from my acting and performing background. I don't like to give anything away before a performance. I I wouldn't like to give anything away before a video game comes out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally kind of lean more towards a, especially for the bigger AAA games. I've always leaned more towards a nine month. You're delivering a baby, an announcement, release. <laughs> But um, I mean, but some of the smaller games, I think they benefit from having a longer time because you can build up hype and build up some fan base around it, as opposed to. And I use Cuphead as an example, where if Cuphead was a, a game that they announced like two months before release, most people would not know about what Cuphead is in the first place, <laughs> uh, because it. But over the years, with Microsoft's exposure with it, that what it is. <laughs> over the years, after seeing it for so long. But now, now there's a fan base who are waiting for that game to come out, as opposed to people who are just kind of like stumble upon it. I mean, some people are still stumble upon it, but still. But um, Mike, what do you say on this? What do you think? See, the, the thing with this, I'm going to use our Cuphead example. I agree with you when you say it. Get, if you have a longer window, like with Cuphead, it gives a developer and a publisher time to drum up hype, which is which is great. And like you said, people would have no idea what Cuphead is, but eventually. You reach a point where it's like, all right, I want to play this. When's this game coming out already? You know what I mean? So um, I, w- I would go for a shorter window, if at all possible, really less a-, a year or less. I think no more than a year from announced to when the game releases, I think is adequate. Mm-hmm. Are we, Nick? Well, see, I'm a fan of Square Enix games, so I'm constantly used to waiting five to ten years for the games to come out. But see, this is crazy because Square Enix were never like this. If you look at the games that they released, there was a fi- there was a full Final Fantasy game in '97, '98, '99, 2000, 2001, and 2002. A full 60, 70 hour JRPG. But see, the thing is with Final Fantasy, like with Square Enix in particular, because they are one of the worst defenders, is they can sit there and they can develop a game for that prolonged period of time and the game will still sell insanely well. Then I believe Final Fantasy XV did almost $5 million in the first week. That game like flew off the shelf. Multi-platform. What's that, sorry? On every, I think that's partly done because it was multi-platform and it launched on every console. On it was, I'm, pre, I'm almost 100% sure it was 5 million on PS4. And then it was like oh. under a million on Xbox and then they're not on PC yet, I don't think. Final Fantasy XV is not on PC yet. But me personally, I don't have a problem because games development takes a while. And if you're starting up a new IP, in order to generate hype, you need to announce it. You can't launch a new IP and then say, here's the game trailer, and then three months later, drop the game. That's not really a good way to drum up hype for a game, in my opinion. I'm not a games developer, so I can't really comment on that. But I really think that a year to two years isn't that bad. Like, say, if you debut a game trailer or you show footage, like in-engine footage at E3 2015, 
you have a full game trailer in 2016 and the game launches late 2016, that's not unreasonable at all. I, I don't fault, like some games hit hiccups in development, whether it's licensing or anything else. Like with Kingdom of Hearts, for example, I think honestly all it is is that Disney keeps adding in more levels because they've picked up, since Kingdom of Hearts 3 has been developed, they've picked up a lot more uh, studios and everything else. Like obviously they're going to take advantage of owning Star Wars. They're going to take advantage of uh, the Marvel universe eventually, I imagine. So things like that probably added a few uh, sticks into the wheel, but I don't think th the development cycle should take that long, but there should be a good happy medium between those kind of dates. That's just my opinion though. Mm -hmm. All right. Ian, so what, what's your general philosophy when it comes to the, uh, the announced to release window I, ideally <laughs> uh, yeah I mean I think I would uh, I would opt for you know announcing a game whenever it makes sense when you know enough of it is coalesced that uh, people would look at it and be excited and, and remember it and I think Cuphead's a great example of a game that you know benefited from being announced early but then you know I think the last part of it uh, you know benefits from being really short like maybe nine months maybe even shorter where you kind of know when the game is about to come out. Because uh, I think the thing that, that's really frustrating as a player is the broken promises side of this. Like, if people just say, hey, this is when the game is coming out, and then they deliver on that, I don't think anyone's going to be mad about it. But, you know, because the window is so large now, it's just very hard to predict with games when they're going to come out. But, you know, if it was up to me, I would say, like, announce whenever you're ready to, but then don't keep talking about the game, you know, with a date in mind until you actually have, like, a pretty solid idea of when that's going to be. So it's a very pragmatic point of view regarding it. It really kind of depends on the situation. Yeah, and I just don't need to hear about every game that's in development, you know, over the five years of the development. It's like, it's enough to know, oh, yeah, like, that game company is working on a new game. Cool, I will pay attention to that. Uh, but, you know, I feel like there's a, a, just a really long hype cycle these days for games where there's really not that much to talk about. It's just kind of rehashing the same thing. And... Personally, I just rather if uh, you know there's like a burst at the beginning and then a burst at the end and less you know chatter in the middle of the cycle. So kind of like um, like what CD Projekt Red is doing with um, Cyberpunk 2077, like they announced it. Here's a cool little cinematic trailer. Since then, here or there, but that's kind of it. Yeah, and yeah, I think not doing anything else. I mean, it does help a lot on the developer side, uh, just because your team, right, is working on this thing. They've been working on it for years. Nobody's heard about it. It can get a little grueling. You know, it's nice to give your team a moment to hear all of the great things that people from the outside world have to say about it. Because all you you've just got this echo chamber of what you and you know your team are talking about. But uh, yeah, I think beyond the announce. There could be like a, a dark period for quite a while, and as a player, I wouldn't mind. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, I mean, because it, here as a consumer, it's really kind of, we kind of get like suckered in a lot when it comes to the, <laughs> uh, the, the cycle. Like, uh, I think one, one really bad abuse I remember was um, The Division. Mm -hmm. They oh. anticipated that game was coming out. Like, in uh, 2014, and like they they were pumping out all this stuff. You heard about it for like a good, good maybe two years. 
year and a half, and like it was constant. When it got delayed, it just it, everyone just shut down. Nobody talked about it until release. <laughs> it was like, oh, <laughs> there goes the hype. All right. <laughs> but then you have Uncharted, where you know every time it got delayed, the hype grew. I think it depends on your franchise a lot though, because uh, with the Uncharted series, that was a highly, highly anticipated game. And the one thing uh, was particularly Naughty Dog Studio. They built a really, really good reputation on delivering on promises. They may not be the best on time constraints, but when they deliver you a product, Naughty Dog has a very, very good reputation of delivering a highly polished product. Well, when they've got developers just coming around to their houses with games, you know, <laughs> who, who can who can blame them? Yeah, sorry for my part in delaying uh, The Last of Us 2. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Are you confirmed? Did you confirm that? <laughs> no, they, they've announced uh, there's another Last of Us. I know, but you've confirmed that you've delayed it. <laughs> oh, I, no, I think it's... It doesn't need right. any help from me. <laughs> See, I, I can't wait until years go by and we're talking in retrospect talking about The Last of Us 2 and they go, man, it was great. But when that like that that swan turned up, it was just I don't know, that was just a weird section. <laughs> All right. Anyway, this has been great. I thank you, Ian, again for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Oh my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh man! Any yeah. time you want to come on, you are more than welcome to just hit us up. And if you ever, <laughs> if you ever come to London, if you ever come to London, please come to the the loading bar, the gaming bar, where all the journalists come. Oh, okay, there, yeah. There, I, uh... there, there is a Deus Ex on the beach with your name on it. <laughs> all right. If I am in uh, London or or England at all, I will uh, let you know. All right. Anyway, guys. Time for our outros here. We can find everybody. Uh, also, remember, uh, for those of you watching, we are doing Gamer Meetup uh, this weekend in North Carolina. If you're in that general area, you're really welcome to come. Uh, we got a couple special surprise people coming by. Uh, we'll, I'll let you know about that. If you want to RSVP, you guys can find me on uh, Anchorman V2. You guys, every platform in existence. Um, <laughs> same thing, cross the board. Uh, but, oh, right, time for outros real quick. Uh, Nick? Oh, thanks for having me on the show again. It's always great to do the show on the Mondays. Uh, and keep an eye out this week on my channel. Uh, my What Remains of Edith Finch review for Xbox will be up on Friday once I get my hands on that. And, yeah, so that's everything for me. All right, Mike. All right, guys. Thank you for, turn, for tuning in for another episode of the Multiverse Show. This is Mike from the Inner Circle. Again, TICGN.com. You can find me on Xbox, PlayStation, Switch, Twitter, YouTube, wherever, at MikePDTruth. And James? At James underscore S. Wilson, if you want to come and talk to me on Twitter about anything to do with Radiohead or anything to do with... <laughs> Uh, how I look like Ed Sheeran and how I was amazing in Game of Thrones last night. <laughs> and also, thank you very much to Ian for coming on. So, oh, thank you. All right, Ian, and uh, where can the people find you? Uh, we're on Twitter at Giant Sparrow, and uh, you can also find our website at uh, www.giantsparrow.com. And what comes out tomorrow? Nope, Wednesday. Wednesday. Well, tomorrow Wednesday. It's tomorrow for me. 
It's tomorrow <laughs> for him. Is it, is it for him? Yeah, go with that. <laughs> it's Tuesday right now. <laughs> what remains of Edith Finch uh, for Xbox? Mm-hmm. All right. So, anyway, guys, thank you guys for showing up to the show, the Multiverse Show, episode 61. Uh, it's been a great show. I really do appreciate everybody showing up again. Uh, anyway, guys, this is the Multiverse Show, the greatest show on Mondays, and we will see you guys later. Yeah, but.